Thank you, Kurt. I am uh, David King, and I serve here at Christ Church as assistant to the pastor. And let me encourage you to take your Bible and open your Bibles with me to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 15. We have been looking in John's Gospel at, as I've had opportunity at these seven predicated I am utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we come this evening to the seventh and the final of these predicated utterances, which we find in the 15th chapter of the gospel, according to John. Let me encourage you to follow in your own Bibles as I read in our hearing the first 11 verses. Hear the word of the true and living God. Jesus is speaking, then he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me... You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in me, or abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things... I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek the face of God in prayer. Would you pray with me and for me in the ministry of this God's word? Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we bow in your pre presence tonight, very conscious of a personal question who is sufficient for these things? And then we're reminded by the Apostle that our sufficiency is of God. And so, Father, we would in this hour cry out to you for the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit 
that he may come in the opening of your word to turn our eyes upon Jesus as he is revealed to us in this passage. And Father, I pray that it would do its sanctifying work in molding and conforming us more to the image of this one in whose blessed name we pray, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I am the true vine, Jesus says here. This is, of course, as I mentioned, the seventh of our Lord's predicated I am utterances which we find in the Gospel of John. We have heard him identify himself as the bread of life, as the light of the world. He has said, moreover, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And last time we considered those very memorable words in the 14th chapter of John's gospel, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now we come to this climactic statement of our Lord's predicated I am utterances, where he says in the first verse of John 15, I am the true vine. And we have noted over and over again repeatedly, Jesus confronts his disciples and the crowds who were regularly attending upon his preaching, how often Jesus confronts them with his self-conscious egocentricity. We know these verses so well, you and I, that the sheer magnitude and staggering nature of them are often missed by us and pass us by. After all, here is a Jewish man making his way around in the dust of Palestine, a rabbi from Nazareth, and he's saying to people in these backwater communities, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the only way to the heavenly Father. I am not one of many ways or the best of two or three ways, but I am the only way. And these words must have been utterly staggering to the people who first heard him on these occasions. Of course, John, who wrote this gospel, no doubt expects us in our day to read these utterances of our Lord in the light of the opening words of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And then John comes to this climactic statement in his prologue that the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what we find confronting us throughout the entirety of John's gospel is this staggering, breathtaking, indeed mind-blowing reality of God become man. Remember last time uh, when we were looking at this, we considered how in the frail flesh of our Lord's humanity that God has come in the person of His Son to seek 
and to save that which is lost. Now, if there is one truth that our Lord is continuing to drive home throughout these I am utterances in the gospel, is the truth that he himself is the gospel. To be sure, you've heard me underscore that again and again repeatedly throughout these utterances of our Lord. But we need to hear it over and over again. Jesus is himself the gospel. He is in himself the good news. And you must always resist the temptation of separating the benefits of Christ from the person of Christ. He is the gospel. In him, Paul tells us, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1, 3. In the gospel, God does not parcel out his benefits to us. But in the gospel, God gives us his son, who is the living God, who is the redeemer who is himself the great blessing that God has provided for us in the gospel. Now, as we come to chapter 15 of John's gospel, we're entering into midsection of what is known as the upper room discourse. And it began, you'll remember, in chapter 13, where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, modeling for them, as it were, the grace of all that he is and of all that he does. And that discourse concludes in chapter 17 of John's gospel with our Lord's high priestly prayer. And throughout these chapters, the Lord Jesus has in the forefront of his mind the present good as well as the eternal good. Of his disciples. Recall how in chapter 13 and verse 33, there he addresses them as little children. He knows, he's consciously aware of the reality that they will be bereft by his going to the Father. He is anticipating how despondent they will be, how distraught they will feel. When these events unfold, leading to his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And he is anticipating already how utterly brokenhearted his disciples are going to be. And so throughout these chapters, the Lord Jesus is ministering comfort to his disciples. And he tells them in verse 18 of chapter 14 that... He will not leave them as orphans. He says to them, I will come to you. Now as chapter 15 begins, some commentators tell us that what is transpiring now is that Jesus is leaving his comforting, his consoling ministry to the side, as it were, and is now beginning to instruct his disciples in the more profound matters of the gospel, that he is leaving consolation and that he is now focusing upon instruction. I confess, I have never been content with that approach regarding the beginning of chapter 15. Because it fails to consider, so at least it seems to me, that the great comfort of God is part and parcel of the instruction 
of God. That we should not drive a wedge between the two. And that the manner in which God most ministers his comfort to his people is through the great doctrines of the gospel itself. And what Jesus is doing here is not simply a transition from comfort and consolation to instruction, but strengthening his comfort and consolation by instruction. And here in verses 1 through 17 of John 15, we have what we can term as an extended metaphor, which is dominated by the opening words of the chapter, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the cultivator, the gardener, if you please. And he goes on to describe his people as branches that are connected or joined or united to him, the true vine. Now, I'm probably not going to say much about this in the sermon, but this is the emphasis in this whole passage is upon our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, the great doctrine of our union with him. And so here's this picture. Jesus is actually telling his disciples that his relationship with them will not be dissolved. It will not be broken by death. For he continues his ministry of comfort and encouragement to them, desiring for them to understand that their union with him, the fellowship they have with him, is so intimate and precious and so protected by the heavenly father, the divine vine dresser and gardener, that not even his impending death is going to sever that union. And so he's not simply turning to a ministry of instruction, but he's using instruction further to comfort and to console and thereby prepare his disciples for all which will soon confront them. Now, mind you, in the Old Testament, this imagery of the vine is often used as a common symbol for Israel, the covenant people of God. We see this, for example, in the 80th Psalm, verses 9 through 16. We see it in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, and in 12, uh, Jeremiah 12, verses 10 and following, Ezekiel, we see it there. We see it in Hosea, the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Moreover, this imagery of vines and vineyards has already been employed by our Lord in a number of his parables as they're found in the synoptic gospels. Think, for example, of Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 13. Our Lord is using this imagery. And so such imagery, mind you, is characteristic of our Lord's teaching. And he often draws, you'll recall, images from agriculture and farming in order to teach, to instruct his disciples. Some have suggested that the imagery foremost in our Lord's mind at this point 
is the cluster of golden grapes which overhung and decorated the main entrance of the temple in that day. But what is more important for our purposes this evening is that our Lord sees in himself this emblem of the vine and he says to his disciples, I am the true vine. Now this begins our Lord's extended metaphor and continues, if you please, through the 17th verse. Now then, in order to understand what our Lord is seeking to communicate here, we need to be aware of the fact, as I mentioned, there is a clear Old Covenant background to all of this. In the Old Testament scriptures, Israel was often likened unto a vine that God had planted. You see it, as I said, in Ezekiel, in Hosea, Jeremiah chapter 2. But we see it perhaps most strikingly in the fifth chapter of the prophecy according to Isaiah. There God speaks through the mouth of his prophet and he says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved, meaning the Lord, the Yahweh, the covenant Lord has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And as I mentioned, the same imagery is depicted in the 80th Psalm. Israel was God's vine. Israel was God's special planting. But the sad reality was that Israel became a barren, unfruitful vine, a deeply disappointing vine. And God looked for it to produce, expected his vine to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth only wild grapes. And I would argue that it is against that particular background that our Lord has in the forefront of his mind when he says to his disciples, I am the true vine. And I don't think it's possible for us to underestimate our Lord's self-conscious teaching in this place. Our Lord views himself, indeed sees and represents himself as the true vine, just as in chapter 6 and verse 32, he spoke of himself as the true bread who would come down from heaven. And there is a redemptive historical nature and pattern to our Lord's teaching here. Israel had been God's servant. His son, Israel, is called God's son. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 9. As well as Exodus 4 and verse 22. But Israel had been a disappointing son. Israel had failed the Lord. And he looked for Israel to produce fruitful obedience. And Israel had miserably failed the Lord God, her father. And what Jesus says in this passage, that what Israel failed to do, he now in himself does. What Israel failed to be, he now is that 
I am the true vine. I am the true servant, he says, of the heavenly Father. I am the true and faithful Son who produces all for which the Father looks from a servant as well as from a son. Now, I've underscored the need for us to to view this passage in the light of its redemptive historical flow. In other words, Jesus is declaring himself to be the perfect substance, the concrete reality to which all of the Old Testament types and shadows pointed. And all of those types and shadows foreshadowed, they find their, they find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those types, whether it be people by way of kings and prophets and priests who failed and disappointed, or types in tabernacle and temple, sacrifices that had to be repeated over and over again because they could never take away or bear away sin. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am everything to which the old covenant pointed forward. I am the one who produces the fruit for which the Father looks, the fruit which will glorify him. And just as the Lord Jesus is the true vine, so he is the good shepherd as well. Now, the question that comes to my mind, and perhaps to yours as well at this point, is this. What fruit did Jesus produce that Israel also, in a lesser sense, as God's servant and God's son, failed to produce? Now, in order to answer that question, perhaps it helps for us to approach it in this manner. What was God's repeated, what was God's recurring complaint about Old Testament Israel? What was his recurring charge or indictment against his old covenant people? Well, what the Lord says in Isaiah 5 is that he looked for, expected his vine Israel to bring forth good grapes, and his vine only produced wild grapes. What are we to understand by that? What was the Lord's recurring complaint against his Old Testament people? Well, there were actually at least three of those complaints. There was, first of all, the complaint of routine, phony, superficial religion. Remember how in Mark 7, Jesus cites the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And perhaps the most scorching charge of that is found in the first chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. It is a scathing exposition of God himself as he looks at the superficial religion of his people whom he had blessed with his law, with his glory, and with his grace, and with his promises. Superficial religion, heartless religion. This was one of God's recurring complaints against Israel. And then there was intermittent loveless religion. 
This is underscored somewhat graphically in the sixth chapter of Hosea's prophecy, verse 4. For your faithfulness, God says, is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. Loveless, intermittent religion. How often Israel gave the impression of heeding the warning of the Lord only to turn away from Him in the next breath, as it were. And at the heart of Israel's superficial and loveless religion, there was, of course, disobedient religion. Running through Israel's religious life was this streak of self-willed disobedience to God. Think of 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, with respect to the Lord's indictment of King Saul. How Saul thought that if he gave God partial obedience, then that would suffice. And God, through Samuel, has to come and say to Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And I wonder if... That's God's indictment against much of evangelical religion today. And many evangelical, many evangelicals who talk a good talk and who sing a good song, but that's not the fruit for which God is looking. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, to hearken to God, to live under His Word, to have your life normed and directed by His Word, humbled by His Word, counseled by His Word. Each and every week in this place, when we come under the ministry of the Word, we're experiencing church discipline. Why? Because we're all being disciplined by the Word of God. That's why it's so important to be here each Lord's Day and to hear our pastors open up the scriptures and expound them to us. And so these were God's recurring complaints against his Old Testament church. Their obedience was selective and rarely wholehearted and unqualified. And so it is against this background of Israel's lamentable failures then that as the Lord's planted vineyard that he brings these indictments and declares himself to be, I am the true vine. In other words, he is the servant son who gives to his father the wholehearted obedience which Israel never yielded to him. He was the one who was obedient to death, even to the death of the cross, the sin-bearing, curse-enduring death of Calvary's cross. And he was the one who gave to his father the unqualified, wholehearted love that Israel never gave to their God. There was never so much as a moment when Jesus' love to his Father was ever anything other than all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was never so much as a moment when his obedience to the Father was anything other than unqualified, universal, risk-defying obedience. And the reason Jesus says in John 10 and verse 17 that my Father loves me is because I lay 
down my life for the sheep in utter obedience to the will of God. And so you see the fruit of loving obedience there. And God looked for it, but did not find it in old covenant Israel. But now he finds it in his son, the true vine. In me, the father is given that unqualified loving obedience for which he looked in Israel and in which he failed to see. But this is only half of the story because as the true vine, Jesus produced not only in his own life the perfect loving obedience that glorifies and pleases the Heavenly Father, but by being the true vine, he produced the source of all God-glorifying fruitfulness. Look at it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every fruit, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. And as the true vine, Jesus is not only the perfect example of God glorifying fruit bearing, but he is the perfect model because he is in himself the only source from which God glorifying fruitfulness flows through his people. And if ever we are to begin to begin to give to our Heavenly Father, what He looks to see in our lives, it will only be because out of our union with Jesus Christ, all of our God-glorifying labors are produced out of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's so important. And this passage is underscoring that. And the picture that Jesus is drawing for us here with the use of this imagery is very graphic, is it not? If we are to bear fruit to the Father's glory and so prove or evidence ourselves to be his disciples, then our great need, yours and mine, is to be united to him, to be connected to Christ. By this my Father is glorified, verse 8, that you bear much fruit, so you will or prove to be my disciples. And it is the branches that are joined or united to the vine which bear fruit. The life sap of the parent stem flows into the branches, enabling them in turn to bear fruit to the Father's glory, the fruit of bearing unselective, danger-defying obedience to God. And do you know what God is looking for in your life tonight? What is God looking for in your life? Well, perchance you're not sure, let me tell you. And I can tell you not because I've got any kind of special insight into this matter, far from it but because God himself tells us in his word. God is looking, for, is looking in your life and in my life. He is looking for us to yield to him loving obedience. That, in a nutshell, is the essence of that which the Father is looking for in you 
and in me, loving obedience. So let me ask you, are you giving that? Are you offering loving obedience to the Father? To be sure, we can never, not one of us, offer perfect obedience. For only the Lord, Jesus himself, accomplished that. But as you rise at the beginning of each day, is your prayer spoken or unspoken? Something to the effect, Oh, Father, may my whole life this day yield to you the loving obedience which you alone deserve. Enable me to give you purposeful, loving obedience which I owe you and that God delights to receive and which pleases him. Why does God say of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? It's because he saw in his son that loving obedience to the mission which he had entrusted to him. And that his son had embraced that to himself. Now we can have no claim to be in Christ if our hearts and lives are not in some measure yielding loving obedience to God. To obey is better than sacrifice. You may talk the language of Zion. You may have the theology of Calvin. But if your heart in life is not producing purposeful, loving obedience, poor and feeble and weak though it may be, if it is not the longing of your heart to give, to offer loving obedience to God your Father by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, what claim? Do you, what claim do I have of being united to Christ? Genuine faith, you see, is not merely notional or intellectual. And that therefore poses a question, does it not? How can I be united to Christ, the true vine, so that I can produce fruit to the Father's glory? And thereby show myself Prove myself to be one of his disciples. Now the whole Bible, and most of you here tonight know this, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells us that there is but one answer to that question and one way alone, that it is by faith. It is by faith that you and I are united to Christ. And the reformers were so jealous of faith alone that not only did they preach it, but they were willing to lay down their lives for this truth. Because only self-abandoning faith in Jesus Christ brings us into vital union with him. Faith does not... Merely attach you to Christ. Like you might put on a suit of clothes one day. Only to take them off at the end of a day. But faith takes you into vital union with Jesus Christ. And the Bible has many pictures, images, metaphors. To describe the vitality and the intimacy of that union. He is the head and we are the body. He is the groom and we are the bride. And much else besides. But perhaps this is the most intimate of all. This picture. He is the true vine. Faith in him 
takes us into Jesus Christ. And that is the staggering thing about the gospel. That by faith we can enter into union with Jesus Christ. It takes us into him. Faith is a deeply transformative grace. True saving faith never leaves you as you are. Never. How could it leave you? If it has now you united you to Jesus Christ, who is the life and who is the true vine, how could it ever leave you as you are? And so the evidence of saving faith is not some fluent, eloquent, evangelical, reformed confession, though all of that should be desired. The evidence of saving faith is a life that bears fruit to the Father's glory, the fruit of loving obedience. Because what the Spirit first produced in Christ, He comes to reproduce in His disciples. That's the ministry of replication. And the whole of Christ's life is described in Romans 5 and verse 19 as a life of obedience. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And the whole of his life was lived in loving obedience to the heavenly Father. Now, how does loving obedience to the Father manifest itself? And let me close with this. Listen to Paul writing to the Colossians. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. So he's about to tell us how the elect of God are going to live, how they're supposed to live. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so must you also do. But above all these things, put on love, he says, which is the bond of perfection. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, he's telling us. Kindness, humility, meekness, bear with one another, forgive one another. And dear people, if you think hard about your life, there's a whole lot to forgive. And as you remember that God has, for Christ's sake, forgiven you, how in the world can you then refuse to extend forgiveness to a fellow believer in the Lord Jesus? And if we do not look like that, at least in some measure, how can we claim to be the elect of God? This is the sap that flows into every believing life that produces fruit to the Father's glory. Aren't these words deeply soul-searching? 
Do these words not probe our profession of faith to the core? I am the true vine, Jesus said. I alone have produced the fruit for which the Father looks. And it is in vital union with me that you will begin to produce that for which the Father looks. Imperfectly, of course. Feebly, of course. Poorly, of course. To our shame, often, of course. But nonetheless, this is that for which the Father looks. The Christian life is not simply giving then a head nod to a list of doctrines, though it includes that. And I am a doctrinal Christian, unashamedly. But the Christian life is about the life of Jesus, manifesting his life in our poor, impoverished lives to the praise and the glory of our Heavenly Father. So I leave you with this question. Is it your desire this evening? Is it your desire, the desire of your heart, to bear fruit to the Father's glory? Then do so by virtue of your union with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.